using one of the, the hardback Bibles from out front. You'll find it on page 801 as we continue in our series in uh, the book of Malachi. Malachi, um, I've mentioned before, it's the last book in the Old Testament, but it's not the last book written. Uh, there are a couple of others that actually occur after that, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then First and Second Chronicles are written um, uh, much later as well. Uh, but it is, I mean, he is the last of the, the prophets um, and so rightly fits uh, at the end of our uh, Old Testament. Uh, we will uh, this morning read verses 10 through 16. And as K.O. mentioned, it is our practice to stand when we read God's word. Uh, so if you are able, let me ask that you do that now. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, for your help. Uh, When uh, your word is read and proclaimed, um, it is living and active. It does uh, operate on us in ways that uh, nothing else can. Uh, And we pray that you would be the master surgeon. Uh, Root out sin. Grow us in our love for your word and for holiness. That... We might honor and please Christ in our lives and impact the community around us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, let, I guess sort of by way of introduction, um, anytime the subject of marriage and divorce comes up, Uh, In the process of preaching through books of the Bible, um, we know that's always a sensitive subject. We know there are always people in the room who have been divorced for whatever reason. And so there's always this danger, perhaps, that they feel like they're going to get beat up in the sermon. Or there's this sense that... Um, the guilt or the shame or the embarrassment or even the victory because it was a good and right divorce. Those things are always in your minds. They're always among us. And we recognize that. 
There are children who have been sort of grown up in divorced families and they have a different kind of reaction at the very mention of the word divorce. They react perhaps with guilt or shame themselves, feeling like it was their fault, perhaps with anger and frustration. We recognize that that is uh, always a reality in uh, the room. And of course, anytime the subject of marriage and divorce comes up, there are those that think, I'm just a kid. I'm, I'm single. I, marriage, what does that really mean to me? I'm not married. Or I'm so far away from being married. And yet, this passage is going to have very clear things to say to you as well. We can't ever answer every question about every aspect of a passage in every sermon. We never do that. It would be nice, but your attention span as well as mine would end long before we got there. Uh, If, perhaps better than most, we're actually going to try to do more of that today than we almost ever do because it is the matter of marriage and divorce. Notice that Malachi, first of all, addresses unlawful marriages in verses 10 through 12. The people of Israel, um, we're told in verse 11, Judah has been faithless. Uh, Abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Uh, The people of Israel are marrying Foreigners, they're marrying people who worship idols or other gods or nothing. Uh, They have returned to the promised land. They've they've been in exile. Babylon took Judah, the the southern kingdom, into exile. Uh, They've been there and now have been allowed to to return home. The temple's been rebuilt. They've they've reestablished worship in the temple, the sacrificial system, and all of that has been, been reinstituted. And yet here the people in Jerusalem are finding their wives from the nations around them. Many of which actually are looking for ways to oppress Israel at this time. They're going outside of the household of faith. They're going outside of the covenant community to to marry daughters of a foreign God. Those who, uh, women who are from nations, families, and who themselves worship uh, idols. And that's the charge against them. As we've mentioned before, Malachi brings a series of of charges against God's people. And then there's usually some sort of a question, some sort of a response, some sort of a, I don't know what you're talking about, God. What What do you mean you love us? What do you mean? I mean, we've been in exile. And look at this temple. It's lame. What do you mean you love us? And then you get uh, the first um, five or six verses of chapter one. Why is it a problem that they're marrying the daughters of a foreign god? Well, part of the reason we're told in verse 10. We have one father. God is the father of Israel. God is the one who brought that nation into existence. God is the one who created all of mankind for that matter, but, but certainly the nation of Israel. God is the one who 
hundreds and hundreds, and at this point even thousands of years ago, back in Egypt, promised to Israel, to Jacob, um, that he would be taking his descendants 400 years later out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt and, and into Canaan. He's the one that has preserved them. He is their father. They exist because he's called them into existence. Even in exile, when they might think they were left, yet here they are. Even in exile, God didn't forget them. God didn't leave them alone. Go read Daniel. Go read Esther. Go read Ezekiel. God is their father. Of course, we've seen this already. This was um, the the accusation against them back in chapter 1, verse 6. A father deserves honor. A father deserves obedience. That was commanded even back in chapter 1. And so Israel is rebelling against their father. Israel is being disobedient to her father. He has commanded you only marry in the Lord. You only marry those in the covenant community. And they're being disobedient to their father. But notice too in verse 10, their rebellion isn't just against God. It's also against the covenant community. They're profaning the covenant of our fathers. Why have we been faithless to one another? Even this seeking spouses, seeking wives from these foreign gods, from from these foreign idol worshipers, is actually a sin against the covenant community itself. They are being faithless to each other. It's obvious why... This rebellion would be against against God Himself. He's commanded that they uh, only marry other believers; that they only marry in uh, within the covenant community. We we saw that, by the way, just a few minutes ago in in Second Corinthians. That's why we read the passage we read for our New Testament reading. Joshua does the same thing, and there are plenty of other places in the Old Testament we could go where Joshua in chapter twenty three commands. They're in the promised land. Only marry in uh, those who belong to Israel. Only marry those who um, don't intermarry with the the foreign nations, the idol worshippers around Israel. Unfortunately, we also know from Ezra that this problem doesn't go away yet. Ezra will spend two whole chapters, chapters 9 and 10, dealing with this exact issue, this same issue. So within the next 30, 40, maybe 50 years, when Ezra comes along, the issue remains. They're rebelling against their father. Israel is being disobedient to her father. But she's also being faithless to the covenant community. Part of, the, part of the implication there is the fact that it is a covenant community. Uh, covenants are not to be that easily ignored. They're not to be that easily broken. And so the community is 
gathering around and, and as, as people are getting married, the, the people that come to a wedding uh, ceremony, um, they're not just observers. They're not just the audience. They're not just the congregation. Uh, we say that these, this couple is gathered before God and these witnesses. These are people who later should be able to stand up and go, I was there. I saw them take their covenant vow. They're witnesses to uh, the, the horizontal covenant of marriage. They're being faithless to the covenant community. In fact, it appears from the second half of, of this passage, it's entirely possible that these are either second wives or replacement wives. They're either putting away the wife of their youth in order to take a wife from these foreigners around them, or they're taking them as a second wife. In other words, they're, they're violating these covenant vows that they've made to one another. And it's not just a, a one-off practice. It's actually fairly pervasive. Look at the language of verse 11. Uh, Judah has been faithless. Abomination has been committed in Israel. And in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary. Malachi is using every possible term for the people. Technically, the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't exist anymore. But we come back to using Israel all over again because it was always one Israel. It was always one people. Judah is, was the name of the southern kingdom. They're the ones that have returned and they're in Jerusalem. That's where the temple... In other words, Malachi is using every possible term for the people. He's, he's trying to indicate this is way too common. This isn't one or two people. But it's becoming a, a covenant community habit of putting away a wife to go find a wife from idol worshipers. From those who... Serve foreign false gods. And in fact, it profanes the very people of God. I think that's what Malachi means in his use of the word sanctuary here. I don't think he means the temple. I think he means the people. Even as we just read in our New Testament reading, God promises that the people will be His dwelling place. And I think that's exactly what Malachi is picking up on here profanes the sanctuary, God's dwelling place in and with and among His people. And you want to see just how, how important, just how big a deal this is to God and to Malachi. Notice the language. Just verse 11 alone. Well, 10 and 11. Faithless, Profaning, faithless, abomination, profaned, over and over. Those are not good words. Those are not words of encouragement. The people twice we're told have been faithless. Twice we're told they're profaning the something, some aspect of the covenant community. We're told that an abomination has been committed. You know, they're, 
practical implications for this as well. If God's people, if, if Christian men are using, are choosing body type, hair color, muscle tone, physical features, bank account, whatever, over faith in Christ as criteria for choosing a wife, then what option are the Christian women left with? I mean, it's, it's really a practical implication here. If the men are choosing idol worshipers because they're wealthier, better looking, whatever, you're leaving your sisters in Christ with little to no option. And notice too in verse 12, the, the effect of this sin, this, this sin of, of unlawful marriages, the consequence of, of marrying outside the faith, of uh, profaning God's people is to be cut off from the people of God. Malachi basically prays an imprecatory prayer on these disobedient people. May the Lord cut them off their children and their descendants, may they be cut off from the household of Jacob. Those who marry false uh, idol worshipers and yet still come to the house of the Lord with their offering. Surely God will accept me. I mean, I'm, I'm worshiping. I'm still coming with my offering to the temple. I'm married to an idol worshiping wife. Malachi prays that their descendants would be, would be cut off from the household of God. Some have said, well, I mean, it's, it's evangelistic dating. Uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I know they're not Christians right now, but if I go date them now, I'm going to get them converted. I'm going to share the gospel with them. You realize, practically standpoint, that, that, that never works. And in many ways, this prayer of Malachi is sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Imagine the children that grow up in that household. Dad says Jesus is great. Mom says Jesus is pointless. That kid grows up at least confused. Not to mention the influence that mom has, particularly at younger ages. It would not, it's not at all surprising that their descendants would be cut off, would actually cut themselves off from the very household of God. Let me make a couple of applications from this part of the passage. First of all, we have to understand the Bible is not forbidding marrying people of different races or different nationalities. The Bible is forbidding marrying unbelievers. The issue is not that they're foreigners. Well, I mean, I'm an American. The Bible says I can't marry a German. I just, I just, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm white. I'm not allowed to marry a black. No, that's not what the passage says at all. The whole point is, are they inside the household of faith or are they not? That's the question. 
So we don't get to, we can't use the Bible. We aren't going to use the Bible to to create sort of false uh, rules. It's exclu- exclusively forbidding a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. If you're single, this means your number one criteria: Are they believers? If the answer is no. Well, maybe if we date for a little while, maybe I can get them converted. You know, we'll, we'll go out some and I will, I'll talk about Jesus a little bit with them and, and they'll, they'll believe. They'll come around. Just wait. I mean, they fit every other criteria except this one. But give me time. Scripture would say if you can't marry them, don't date them. That's the point of dating is marriage. And if you can't marry them, don't date them. Malachi turns his attention then to a second problem. Uh, the problem of that we've dealt with unlawful marriages. And then the second problem is that of unlawful uh, divorces. Uh, it seems to be, I mentioned this before a second ago. It seems to be that, um, that they may have been putting away the, the wife of their youth. In order to marry these idol worshipers, that men were going, well, I'm tired of her. She no longer, you know, she burns the toast. I don't know. I, I don't know. Whatever the issue is. She, she's not really, I just, I don't really like her anymore. I, I've stopped loving her and, and it's just not working out. So I'm going to, I'm going to send her away. I'm going to put her away and I'm going to go marry someone else or perhaps taking a second wife, but certainly the second half of the passage is, is forbidding um, unlawful divorce. At the heart of divorce is putting an end to uh, one flesh, one spirit relationship between a husband and a wife. And, and here for little or no cause at all. Look at verse uh, 14. You say, why does he not? Why does he not accept uh, our gifts? From verse thirteen, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Look again at verse fifteen. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And let none of you, at the end of verse fifteen, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. So clearly his aim, he's targeting these unlawful uh, divorces, this putting away of the wife of your youth. Notice, when you go to a wedding, uh, there are multiple witnesses. Uh, and not all of them are physically seated, sitting in a chair, seated in a pew. Uh, because this passage tells us God was the one who was at work, who was the witness of this covenant and who made them one with each other and with the Spirit. He's the one that brought these two people together and knitted them together and put them together in one flesh, one Spirit partnership. Part of what Malachi wants us to see is that what God puts together is not supposed to be easily taken apart. What God sews together should not be quite so easily torn in half. 
He's the witness. He's the one putting together this couple. Why the focus on the wife? You'll notice the language of the Old Testament frequently and and certainly here and and other places as well. Sort of emphasizes the plight of the wife where the the men seem to be the guilty ones and the women are the ones being being put aside and divorced and left for other reasons. Why why didn't the Bible ever turn it around and, and go the other way? Well, one of the reasons, and this has not much to do with this particular story. One of the reasons is Genesis 2.24, but that's another sermon for another day. Another is that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, wives had, women had no standing. In and of themselves, they, they actually had little to no standing. And so a, a divorced wife, a widow, either, frequently had no option but to go home and live with mom and dad. That was the best case scenario. The worst case scenario was that she lives in abject poverty on the streets. Unless she has a son that can care for her, at least in the case of widows. In other words, the Bible's... God's injecting laws into the culture that protect the ones that the culture wouldn't protect. There's always this argument, and and this doesn't go away. Christianity just oppresses women. It's misogynistic. And and those Christians, they just think so little of... Well, this is actually the exact opposite. This is the Bible. This is God coming along and saying, we're going to create protections for the wife that the culture would say she has no standing at all. She has no status. She has no... No, nothing to her credit in this community. God's actually protecting the ones, giving the wives a standing both before Him and the community that they otherwise wouldn't have had. What about a... What if you take these two halves of Malachi 2 and put them together? What if two unbelievers get married and then one of them gets converted later in life? Now what? Now I either have to violate the first half of the passage or I have to violate the second, right? I either have to be unequally, I have to be married to an unbeliever or I have to divorce them. What are my options? What are my choices? Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, I should have told you a long time ago, uh, don't put your Bibles away. First Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 12. Uh, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? 
whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 7, envisions that exact scenario. Two non-Christians have gotten married. One of them gets converted now, finds themselves married to an unbeliever. Now what? His instructions are, if the unbeliever wants to stay, then you stay. If the unbeliever wants to leave and leaves you because of your faith, you are free to remarry. It seems to be in this case. In fact, part of his... Part of his idea, part of his vision, at least in verse 16, is the very real possibility that that the unbelieving spouse will ultimately come to faith in Christ. You know, Peter sees this in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he talks about a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. And he actually encourages, he says there's actually hope that the unbelieving husband would come to faith. And he says there, It's not through her nagging. It's not through her prodding. It's not through her um, preaching at him. It's actually through her conduct that he may very well be one. Perhaps you know situations just like this. It's the story of my parents. My mom, a believer, years before my dad. And ultimately coming to faith in Christ. Ultimately brought to the the recognition of his sin and his need for a Savior. Well, the question then becomes, well, does that mean there are no grounds for divorce at all? Does that mean that all divorce is illegitimate? Turn to Matthew chapter 19. This is one of a couple of places where Jesus essentially says uh, the same thing. Matthew 19, um, verse 9. We'll shorten the the passage. Just verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says the same thing back in, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. That sexual, um, sexual sin, sexual immorality is a grounds for divorce. God allows for divorce in that case. Now notice the word. Allows. Not mandates. Not expects. Not requires. But certainly allows in that case. Why does the Bible put so much emphasis on this teaching of marriage and divorce. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, we have um, instructions to wives and husbands and We frequently get bogged down in the details of the instructions. Words like submit um, that cause many great consternation. But in Matthew 5, verse 22, wives, 
Uh, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And notice verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Our earthly marriages are intended to reflect the one true great marriage between Christ the groom and his bride, the church. In fact, there's a sense in which you can look back at verse 10 of Malachi 2 and see God as the Father. He's the one that actually gives the bride away. There's coming a day when the Father will basically walk the bride, the church, down the aisle and present her, give her to Christ. And then we celebrate the the great marriage feast and celebrate that wedding that will last for all eternity. Jesus never turns His back on His bride. Jesus never divorces his bride for any reason. Jesus never looks at his wife and goes, you know what, I'm just tired of you. You keep disobeying. You keep doing the same things over and again, over again. You keep burning the toast. Will you never learn? I'm going to put you away. I'm going to divorce you for this. Jesus never, ever turns his back on the bride. She neglects him frequently. She messes up daily. He loves her through it all. Oh, that our marriages might reflect that one. Oh, that our marriages might proclaim that gospel, that reality. Oh, that we might know this sense of never being left, never forsaken. If you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, that's your hope. That's your expectation. That's your future. That's your eternity. You can look at your marriage. You can look at your parents' marriage. You can look at your divorce. You can look at your parents' divorce and go, that does not mark me. Christ does. If you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, you don't have that same promise. It's entirely possible that you will stand before the judgment one day and He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's not turning your back on you. That's never knowing you at all. Would you trust in Christ? Would you run to the cross and find forgiveness and know this comfort and hope of a husband who regardless of what your husband's done to you, regardless of what your dad did to your 
mom, this husband is the only true perfect husband who loves his wife despite her faults. Take comfort there. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are unworthy. Uh, We are unworthy to be called a member of your bride, a part of the bride of Christ. We are unworthy of that claim at all. We are unworthy of your love. We're unworthy of your faithfulness. We ourselves have been faithless. We have shaken our fists in your face. We have been negligent. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect husband. We thank you for the fact that your love for us never fails, never fades, never weakens. And that our hope is not in our faithfulness, but in yours. Would you bring unbelievers to faith in Christ that they might know that same comfort and hope? Would you encourage us uh, to that end that the single folks among us, those seeking a spouse, would look for this primarily? That they would find believers? That that would be their first criteria, the first checkbox on the list? Father, for those who have been through divorce, whether they wrestle with guilt and, and disappointment and frustration or even a sense of, of pride and, and arrogance in a right divorce, Father, would you, would you comfort them? Would you, would you draw them to a deeper love for Christ who loves them more than they even know? Strengthen our faith. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.